RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of City Ringside. My name, as always, is David Penzer, and as always, we are so happy that you are here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. Question number one, what do Scott Steiner and Teddy Hart have in common? The answer is, year to date, they are still both full of shit. Because they both said they do this podcast and made it. Actually, hey, I, I don't know if I have more, more respect more respect for Teddy that he made up an excuse that he was sick, or for Scott for just ignoring me when he said he would promise me he would text me back. But uh, but hey, no hard feelings. I uh, I actually. Uh, I'm going to keep on both of them. Uh, both of them are uh, Scott for sure uh, is extremely uh, hard to get in contact with when we do, he was doing legends of wrestling shows uh, legitimately. Uh, it would be like I would, I would have like an hour to book his ticket or like 15 minutes to book his airplane ticket because I do logistics for them. Uh, and uh and he would, uh, and, and, you know, with like five minutes left before the deadline to book his ticket, he would contact me or text me. So he's, he's very, very hard to get in touch with. I know he, he owns a Shoney's and he was telling me last week that sometimes he even has to wash the dishes for a shift. He did the dishes a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I, I really can't imagine Scott Steiner doing the dishes, but uh, I can't imagine him doing this podcast. It's just not happening this week, folks. So if I got your hopes up, I apologize. We will work on Scott Steiner and we'll work on Teddy Hart. Welcome to the show. We do have a fun guest that uh, I think is going to be very entertaining uh, if history is any indication, and that is the quintessential stud muffin, Joel Gertner. Uh, in some ways, it's funny. We have a lot in common. Uh, in some ways, we have nothing in common because he uh, was only briefly a ring announcer and and went ahead to be a manager and a personality, uh, but uh, kind of both got to live our dreams uh, organically, kind of just both uh, were able to uh, rise in our different companies uh, to, the, to the place where we both were, you know, pretty in, in pretty good spots. And then uh, both of us, our companies uh, went out of business at the height of our careers. So it's, uh, it's going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to talking to him. I interacted with him once at an indie show. We'll talk about it. Uh, it's the greatest indie show, greatest payout I ever got in my life. And the guy who promoted it is in, was in jail. And if we could ever get a biss on, and now that he's with WWE, that, that's doubtful. Uh, but I, I've always wanted to tell the John Collins story. Uh, I think main event championship wrestling is what he called it out of Ohio. And then he did book the ECW arena for a show. But uh, but Abyss tells a great story about uh, uh, me and Buff Bagwell actually walked out of a show because... There was, you know, you hear the stories on the internet and the old kayfabe sheets about these indie promoters that like fake a heart attack because they don't have the money. This guy did did that. He faked a heart attack and went home. And uh, and so the next uh, we the next show that we were at, uh, I told him in Ohio that we were uh, not going to be in buff. We're not going to perform until. We got our money from the last show. But what I didn't know at the time is that Abyss and a bunch of the other guys actually knew where he lived and went to his house. And 
had the, it's a great story, so I don't want to tell it. So one day Abyss will be on this podcast, and uh, and 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 he could tell the story. But uh, uh, it got kind of it got kind of ugly there. And uh, so he ran the ECW arena, and he wanted Buff, and and me and Buff sort of at that point, had, I was sort of like uh, like like legitimately managing Buff for this guy because Buff didn't want to deal with it. And uh, so I said, let me handle it. You know, I'll let the Jew handle it. Uh, God, I shouldn't say that, but uh, I'm allowed to make fun of myself. And I said, oh, we'll get the money. So he's doing the CCW Arena show, and uh, he promised us that he would fly us up and pay us before we got into the ring everything he owed us, which for me at the time was $1,000. And he did. And uh, we'll, tell, we'll tell the rest of the story with... Uh, with Joel Gertner in a few minutes, but uh, it was uh, it's a positive ending. The other cool thing is his sponsor, uh, where we used to have the after parties in Ohio, was at a small little uh, not yet franchise place called Buffalo Wild Wings. It was the first Buffalo Wild Wings that ever existed before they went out and franchised it, and that's where we used to have the after parties, and we had got free food and free drinks and uh, and that kind of stuff. So it's sort of uh, now you know the rest of the story. Uh, Buffalo Wild Wings is now everywhere, and me and Joel Gertner aren't everywhere. So that's the rest of the story. Hey. By the way, uh, if you haven't already, we say this every week, but I uh, just uh, always like to remind you, be sure to follow me on Twitter at David Penzer. Uh, at Penzer Ringside is the podcast handle and uh, fun interacting with everybody. Uh, had a little bit of interaction uh, this week after the uh, pay-per-view, uh, which I only saw the main event of the Shield, the Shields match, which I thought was perfect nostalgia, especially if Dean Ambrose is really leaving. Uh, I asked everybody else what I missed, and most people said not much. So uh, it was good to be able to uh, to see the good stuff and, and avoid the bad stuff. That was pure coincidence. But follow me on Twitter. If you have any questions, show suggestions, guest suggestions, I am an open book and uh, always fun to interact. Also, be sure to uh, subscribe to City Ringside and leave a review if uh, it's available to do so. And if you're a new listener, because uh, uh, we, we are, thank God, knock on wood, growing the audience here uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, if you're a new listener, be sure to go back and look at the archives. We have some great interviews. Scott Hall, Terry Funk, off the top of my head, Larry Zabisco, Sonny Ono, Glacier. Uh, uh, just really, really, really great interviews. Our first one ever was with Justin Roberts. And uh, Nick Patrick uh, was the second interview, and he told the story, the real story, quote-unquote, about the, fast, quote unquote, the so-called fast count at uh at Starcade between Sting and and Hulk Hogan that um I know that Eric and Conrad have argued about on uh 83 weeks in recent months. So anyway, uh catch you know if you haven't uh already if you're a new listener and you like what we're doing, go back and uh, and and catch some of the old interviews if you have a long drive or some free time and uh it's really fun stuff. I was looking at the other day at all the people that we've interviewed. There's over 85 of them and uh wanted to just give you a heads up on that so uh at this point without further ado please welcome this week my guest the man who's not scott steiner or teddy hart but i am very happy to have him on city ringside and that is the quintessential stud muffin joel gertner 
Ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week on City Ringside, one of the more interesting characters in the world of professional wrestling in the late 90s, early 2000s. I'm talking about ECW's quintessential stud muffin, Joel Gertner. Happy to have you on the show, Joel. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. 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 Is that all I am? You, Penzer, is a character rather than being another human being. No, but that's, of course, that's is why. That, is that what I am? Just here for amusement, haha, gaga, funny, la di da, cartoon character type. That's what. That's why I wanted to have you here, is because we wanted to get to know the real Joel Gertner, not the the character Joel Gertner. So that's you know that's why we do this. We uh, last week we we talked to the real Scott Hudson and got his thoughts about the last night show and the week before that. Uh, I think it was the real Buff Bagwell, but uh, but thank God there's a thank God there's a real Buff Bagwell and a real Scott Hudson that do exist. That's good to know. <laughs> I'm going to chase those out. As for the real Joel Gertner, brother. You're sounding like, you know, less like David Penzer and more like Henry David Thoreau, because I think the real Joel Gertner I haven't yet found. But uh, <laughs> but maybe in the next little bit or so, uh, we'll we'll find that person together if he does indeed exist. There we go. So before we talk about your career, and I definitely want to talk about your journey in the wrestling business, a couple of things right off the top. So as we tape this, it's 630 on Tuesday night. We uh, dropped this on Monday morning. Uh, so we're taping early, as we have to tape in advance for sure. And um, your wife, who's a publicist and works uh, for South by Southwest, or was at South by Southwest and is flying in tonight, told you that you, you informed me that she told you that you had a hard out at 710, correct? Which means you have to be off the podcast by 710. Yeah, she she did. Okay. She, uh, she Being her publicist self, her PR self, uh, she just represented a, a Rob Ford-related movie called Run This Town uh, that's getting sold, and it had its world premiere at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. She is at the airport now getting her bag, and uh, I'm going to be home maybe right around the time we end this podcast. And, and I, you had asked me about, in regards to a hard out, you had asked me uh, in, like, Facebook message, you, you know, being punny and being, you know, clever – and, you know, lyrical miracle styling, cunning linguist styling. <laughs> you had asked me, what's the difference between a hard out and a hard on? That's what and I was going to ask you. you. I, I said, I didn't know anything about that. I said, but what I do know, and I'm happy to tell you about, is the difference between, and, and I'll give it to you, and you, I wanted to tell you this in Messenger, and I pleaded with you to look at the punchline. And it would have behooved you to do so because now you begged me and said, listen, you know, we're going to be on in half an hour. I'm kind of, I can't look at it now. Maybe it'll be better if I don't see it. And, you know, it'll be natural for the podcast. So long story short, I know nothing about the difference between a hard out and a hard on. Here's what I do know. What is black has a small dick and hangs down? I don't know. A bat. A bat? Right, like Batman, a bat. <laughs> now, what is of fairer color has a big dick and hangs up? Well, uh, you got me. That's fantastic, man. Isn't that tremendous? Is that going to be the first time we've had, you've had a little disjointed, uh, Delio on your potty. That's funny, isn't it? I used to do that to folks in high school when I was 16. That used to be my hard out, so to speak. 
and uh, and, and it kind of got over then. I hope it kind of got over with you as well. So the second question I had, I think you won't hang up on this one. Uh, I, I, I was you know looking on your uh, Twitter page just to see what you've been doing to prepare for this interview as a consummate professional like myself would. And I happened to see an interesting concept, and I'm wondering if uh, you're marketing it the way it's coming out. It was a video of your wife telling you how to cook a meal and you doing it on YouTube. Oh, you watched that. It was like a shrimp and uh, slaw <laughs> yeah. and, and, and rice, jalapeno yeah, rice. Yeah, yeah, sh- yeah. Shrimp and uh, jalapeno tomato uh, rice. And there's some uh, cabbage and some sort of avocado slaw. Yeah, we've been doing that. I've got a YouTube channel now. Uh, if you Google even just Joel Gertner without Joel Gertner channel, um, you know, there's a lot of old videos that other people have put up. So because the channel just started a couple months ago, if you Google Joel Gertner, it's on like the third or fourth page down, probably the third page. It's like one of the top 20, uh, but not one of the top 10 entries. If you Google uh, YouTube search Joel Gertner channel, it might come up a little bit higher than that. But please find it. Please do subscribe. Ring the bell. You know, whatever, whatever's going on these days. You know, I feel like I feel like I'm in high school uh, doing these because the probably the average age of people that do a YouTube channel is probably in the teens. But uh, but absolutely find the channel. It's good for like if you want to watch me and my wife go at it like 2019 style. Um, it's good for that. Uh, we cook food. Um, we also do a lot of um, we unbox the food when it comes in from Blue Apron. We unbox wrestling stuff as well. I even made a 27 minute video out of Cash Word doing a scratch off lottery thing. So uh, we have a lot of fun with it. So the gimmick is that she tells you how to cook and you do it. Yes, sir. Like uh, her, such is life. Like right? her reading you the directions. Yeah, uh, she, yeah, she's got the phone, the camera. She's like the director of photography. She's the program <laughs> manager. She's the EP. She's all that. And then I just go ahead. And, yeah, I'm like the sous chef. We do a little prep beforehand. Uh, it, it, it's it's a tight ship, man. It's good. And, uh, and the food winds up tasting good and, uh, and being better for my belly than probably. It's all Blue Apron stuff. Weight Watchers freestyle. Um, they're getting some free plugs here on your podcast. So, uh, yeah, it's really cool. But, yeah, absolutely. Subscribe to the channel. I would love that. We're at 313 right now. Um, it's tough to get YouTube subscribers. They put you over based on their algorithm, and their algorithm essentially is the fewer subscribers you have, the less we're going to deal with you. Um, so we're trying to get to 500 next. And when we get to 500 as a treat, we are going to release the entire backlog, volumes one and two, of my podcast, which I can't wait for you to be a guest on, The 69-Minute Eargasm. And I, I, I hate to ask, but what is that podcast about? Uh, it's essentially 69 minutes, uh, give or take 69 minutes either way. Uh, usually we, uh, we go overboard, and usually it winds up being uh, closer to an hour and a half or two hours and uh, and it's a little bit of everything, man. It's kind of like the YouTube channel, but not really. But we'll have a guest or two on each episode, and we'll just talk about kind of, um, you know, certainly wrestling, if they're wrestling-related, certainly their career, 
but also it'll just be the most random, ridiculous, nonsensical stuff. Uh, I've asked at this point many a wrestling personality, uh, past half a dozen, maybe closer to a dozen different wrestling personalities or more. I've asked, it, look, if cockroaches can evade nuclear holocaust and survive chemical warfare what the fuck is in a can of raid <laughs> and i've asked that and believe it or not i've even asked it to people who are expert and would know within the wrestling business like marty the moth martinez and killer bb brian blair oh, I gotcha. yeah and and as you could imagine uh Answers are widely varied and different. Your mileage may vary if you only listen to one or two of the answers. So why not hear them all when you go to iTunes or wherever all of your other used-to-be favorite podcasts until listening to mine are purveyed and uh, and go on and search for the 69-minute eargasm. It's a doozy. You'll be glad you did. Don't miss it. Be there. So let's talk about your involvement in professional wrestling. When did you get interested as a, assuming as a kid? Yeah. Yeah, I did. In the 80s, uh, living in Brooklyn, watching on Channel 9 at the time, watching World Wrestling Federation. And, uh, and what wasn't there to get interested in, man? It was, it was different than anything else that was on TV. Um, I, I gravitated towards the talkers because the promos were different than anything you'd hear on TV. And, uh, and I gravitated towards the freaks. So I was into, you know, guys like Piper, Ventura, uh, Howard Finkel, and all of the managers of the time. And then as far as wrestlers went, I was into guys like George the Animal Steel, Kamala, Missing Link. But I think because of his promos and his psychology, just his overall aura and vibe, uh, I preferred the heels. And my favorite wrestler growing up, uh, he came into the territory in uh, late 85, early 86, would be Jake the Snake Roberts. It's funny, as a wrestling fan, I really gravitated towards the promos as well. If I go back on YouTube, for instance, and watch like an old episode of Championship Wrestling from Florida or, or, or Georgia Championship Wrestling, whatever it might be, I just I fast forward through the matches. I watch the angles and the promos. So uh, I understand what you're saying. And I was a, a big, uh, big, big Piper fan who, uh, uh, bless him, ended up uh, being able to uh, to be his tour manager for his book tour in 2002. So that was like a dream come true. That's uh, awesome. But you know what? Uh, you know, just to, you know, to, to round that out, like nothing against the wrestling, but just as a product of its time. You know, at the time, it wasn't like, you know, you were on Nitro, so it was a Monday Night Wars. For people who don't know, and everybody, you know, who's listening probably might know, but just in case you don't, like in the 80s when it was syndicated TV like that for the one hour, just trying to sell tickets to the garden, real territory style as far as a business model, even though it had been nationalized already, like – the matches, a lot of the time, the squash matches were only about three minutes or so each. If you were lucky, Piper's Pit, which came on at like the 35-minute point, it would go for more like five minutes. And by the time it was done, you know, quite a few weeks, it, the most eventful thing that might have happened on that week's show happened in Piper's Pit. So it's almost like there was an unfair advantage kind of against the wrestling where the free wrestling you got on TV – 
you know, what wasn't, you know, moving the needle as much as, like you say, some of the promos that happened, you know, from guys that were outside the ring of time. Uh, we got the NWA and WWF as well, but uh, uh, there was a time, and I don't know, I, I know Dusty was booking, I don't know whose idea, probably good to ask J.J. Dillon at, at some point, but uh, they they went to a format for about six months, to, and I don't know if you were able to watch in, in New York, the NWA, uh, for about six months where they did literally 30-second squash matches and then followed by a four to five minute promo there's there's not one match on the show that went longer than a minute and a half and you know you got and and you got to think about it you had so much promo talent you had the rock and roll express you had jim Cornette and the midnight express you had dusty Rhodes. you had uh, rick flair arn anderson i mean just think about how you know nobody wants to see him wrestle they can go to their hometown to see him wrestle they want to see it they want to listen to him cut promos and they did end up changing it back so i don't know if maybe uh it was just too quick as squash matches but um but i'll never forget that they went with that format for about six months and it was great because like i said I, I wasn't a big fan of the matches back then unless they were showing an angle that they taped somewhere else. I'm assuming you were not a Bob Backlund fan back in the day. I totally wasn't. I totally have a big appreciation for him now. I'm a huge Bob Backlund fan now personally because I've worked with him. I've met him. So personally and professionally because I'm, I'm big into watching right now, um, 1980, 1981, WWF All-Star Wrestling on the network, which is when he's in his heyday, during, you know, in his run. So, yeah, Backlund, super into him now, but you're right. At the time, coming in at the tail end of his run and uh, and preferring heels, I wasn't much of a Backlund fan at all, and then I wasn't much of a Hogan fan at all. No, and see- likewise now, you know, you look back on guys who can tell a story, who can grab the audience, who's got charisma and can do the most with by doing the least. And Hogan's right at the top of the list. But at the time in the mid 80s, it just wasn't for me. Yeah, see, I, I gravitated towards the heels, too, but I, I couldn't help but get on the, the Hulk Hogan bandwagon with the Rocky music uh and the and the the entrance and and just just the whole it was such a different style and the excitement was at a different level i couldn't i couldn't uh avoid getting on that train for at the very beginning and uh they, they did a great job of really pumping that um so how did how does one joel gertner get involved in the wrestling business i know you started young as uh, as a manager uh 17 i think it says online uh, what's your what's your thought process though? Is your thought process I'm going to become a wrestler? Is your thought process I want in any way I can? So let me see what I can do. I started. I think now I need to fight for each additional month on the back end because you got people coming in. You know, especially in Britain, sometimes they're starting kids at like ten or eleven these days. So like, I want to just put my foot down and say the internet's entitled to say whatever it wants. I believe I started either at sixteen or closer to 16 and I'll fight for that. But, um, man, how did I get in? Yeah, I was a manager. Um, but I was also a ring announcer. I was also a referee, whatever a show needed. Uh, I started the lower East side wrestling gym, which was, um, kind of, we didn't do so much indie shows as we did bootleg shows. Uh, if you gave $10 to come in, it wasn't GA for a ticket. It was for a donation to the gym, to the club. And it was on the lobby level of one of the project buildings in the Baruch housing projects uh, at FDR Drive and Houston, East Houston. Um, 
in the city on Lower East Side, uh, actually a part of Lower East Side at the time called Alphabet City. Uh, Avenue A, Avenue B, Avenue C, right within a block or two walking distance was Avenue City, uh, uh, Alphabet City. And that was uh, a real dicey part of town. But uh, yeah, you know, just started off there, uh, met guys like Chris Canyon, uh, Jason Knight, uh, Crowbar, Devin Storm, uh, the Inferno Kid, Danny Gimondo. Uh, just met a lot of guys, a lot of New York and New Jersey guys, whoever it was that was starting up around 1991. And, uh, yeah. Did you train to be a wrestler or did you just more like kind of hang out and watch and do the manager ring announcer gig? I took maybe one session just, just so I would know my bread wasn't buttered in it. Um, I kind of did already because I think a year or two earlier would have been the beginning of freshman year. And I also likewise at school in my high school uh, did like one day of like, hey, you know, what would it be like if I tried to join the wrestling team? And I knew I wasn't going to make the team. And I knew I would because at the time I was super unathletic. I didn't have any. I wasn't in Little League Baseball. I wasn't in Pop Warner. I wasn't you know working out at the gym every day. I just had, you know, everything was kind of, you know, studious more than anything else, you know, studying, talking, that kind of thing, having fun. Um, but, um, so yeah, so I took maybe one day of, you know, I probably, if I remember it right, I showed up in a matching Everlast, uh, not the wrapper, but the, uh, the old school, um, workout gear brand, like a t-shirt and shorts set that went perfect together. And like, I, I, it's almost like it was a, like if people looked at me and said, wow, this guy's trying to do like an Andy Kaufman bit. Right. At that particular moment, I kind of wasn't, I don't think. But <laughs> what I was trying to do, I think most directly and consciously was I knew my bread wasn't buttered in being a in-ring wrestler. I wanted to know why. And it paid off for me immensely because now if I'm doing like color commentary, like let's say I'm doing an eye pay-per-view, it's live. I have no idea what's happening and I'm doing the color for it. I can watch a guy do the craziest, sickest thing. I, you know, I, was, I did one in Pittsburgh. Sabu was about 45 or 50 at the time. It was a few years ago. And he did a crazy flippy Sabu deal. And the way I put it over was, you know, you 20 something in your mom's basement, might be thinking to yourself, wow, I know that if I tried hard enough and learned it, I could do what Sabu just did. But what you don't realize, and I went on, and the punchline for it was that if you walked in the door of a wrestling school, you'd likely quit from the back bumps and just trying to take the ropes. Sure. You know? because So, so doing stuff like that, um, getting chopped by Cyrus on live TV at a pay-per-view towards the end of the ECW run was another kind of learning on the job. It was, I'd been chopped, I think as a rib by one of the boys kind of like, you know, in a bar after a show, you know, it's not the first time, but it was maybe the third time in my life that I'd ever been chopped. And it was the first time I'd ever been chopped for money with a camera on me. And so stuff like that, but going back to, you know, the school doing it the one time, you know, taking the back bumps, trying to take those ropes, and just seeing the welts the next day, stuff like that. I never wanted to be a wrestler with all due respect because I knew that I couldn't be one of the best and it wasn't what I enjoyed doing the most. But taking the little bit of instruction that I did, did give me some discipline 
as to the discipline, if that makes sense. Yeah, down south, uh, like the power plant and different uh, areas down south, they don't even let you start taking the bumps uh, and running the ropes until you do like about a thousand squats, like for a week in a row and puke. So I, I... not not a chance and I was I was the most unathletic kid in the world and unlike you I actually like did a little sports because my dad was the coach so like he was the baseball coach so you know you could hear when I used to get up you know I bat ninth obviously I would bat tenth if there was a tenth batter and, uh, <laughs> and and you could hear everybody murmuring especially if there's somebody on base oh no it's the coach's son oh no it's the coach's <laughs> son I'll never forget that so I knew there wasn't an, I knew when I got involved and we could talk about that maybe a little bit more on your on the Eargasm podcast, but I knew there wasn't a chance in hell, so I didn't even try. But I did get beat a little up nepotism by, in the nine spot. Yeah, I did got I, I did get beat up in, uh, by Kurt Angle in, in TNA, but that's a whole different story, and it's on nice. video. And we've talked about that before. So tell me about your start at ECW. How did it come about, and uh, how did you become the quintessential stud muffin? You know, I gave an elevator pitch um, at a time when I didn't even know what an elevator pitch was. Uh, And I don't even know if such a thing was called an elevator pitch at the time. It probably was. But in 1995, I was at an ECW show. And so after the show, I went back to the hotel like everybody did. And by everybody, I mean not just people who might have been visiting friends who were on the show, networking, people who were on the show, pardon company. Not just that. But like I was thinking about it the other day while I was watching ECW and looking at the faces in the crowd. A good 25 to 50% of the people in that crowd at the ECW arena wound up back at the hotel for at least some period of time. And um, so I was there. Uh, I had nothing to lose. Uh, I think a moment of courage came over me that had never been of my nature. Um, I was kind of shy and bashful at the time, having not had a big break yet. Um, and it just, you know, that's just who I was. So at one point outside the elevator in the lobby, uh, Paul was there and I was nearby. And and again, I I thought to myself, well, you know, it's no until you ask anyway. Yep. So I I knew that they had a show coming up in Middletown, New York. Uh, I was going to Cornell at the time. So I was in Ithaca and in my elevator pitch, I made it seem like the two of them were closer together than they really are. They're not. There's still a good, I don't know, two, three, four hours, and I didn't have my own wheels at the time. But um, but I didn't let that stand in the way. I went up to him. I introduced myself, uh, told him I was a big admirer of all of his work and that he was somebody that I considered a mentor, um, told him that I was managing, uh, ring-announcing, refereeing as well. And just I said, um, you have Middletown, New York coming up um, indoors because they had done the fair once or twice, um, but this was indoors so it was in a new venue. And I said, I know that um, your ring announcer and timekeeper crew is uh, local to Philadelphia. They're based out of Philly. Um, I don't know if you're expecting them and if they're going to be at the Middletown show or not. But I go to Cornell, um, not too, too far away. And, and I think I told them along the way, like we had mutual friends, one or two. And, uh, you know, I used to listen to them on John Arezzi's radio show, just whatever I could think of. That happened to be just, I think, all the right things in all the right order, concise at the right amount of time. I don't know how it worked out that way. I'm so blessed and glad that it did. And I just put the capper on it with 
Um, if you know they're not going to be there, or if you feel like you could use me, I'm very happy to audition, and I'd be more than happy to be there. And I said something like that, kind of like a selling question. And he, he just looked at me, and he was like, "You want it?" And I looked back at him, and I was like, "Well, yeah." He's like, "You got it. Be there by five." And that's it. Five. Be there by five became five plus years. Wow. I think I think you knowing Paul Lee a little bit back then. I think you probably had him as as uh, had him at huge admirer. <laughs> yeah. And it, and if you said you do it for free, you definitely had him at free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, both of those I'm sure were in there. Yeah. So um, who? So so you started out as doing some ring announcing, and uh, who was it that came? Was it Paul? Was it was it somebody in the back that came? One of the boys that came up with the. To, uh, evolution to sort of turn you heel uh, because you seem to have the gift of the gab, so to speak? Uh, first, it benefited me that I had the gift of speaking Spanish um, convincingly, like being conversational, if not at the time fluent, and and having the right accent as well where I sounded authentic at it and had been watching enough AAA on Galavision that not only was I a good Spanish speaker, like in the classroom or wherever, but when it came to wrestling, I was a good Spanish speaker for lucha libre purposes. So that's the first thing that happened is that right at the time that I came into the company in September of 95, when you go in those next few months from like September of 95 until about, let's call it um, maybe March, I'm not sure exactly, but for about a half year, You've got, you know, Rey Mysterio, Juventud Guerrera, Sicosis. you got all these guys coming in. And that's what I was doing, was doing um, Spanish language, lucha, ring announcing, to the point where they brought Damian Cesar Damian, right. and because he had been doing some work in Japan with war, when he was at a New York City show, at one of the Queen shows, when he was in the ring, at school, at college, I was also taking Japanese because I figured, you know, you were watching Lucha. So in high school, it made you take Spanish, get good at it. So in college, why don't you take Japanese? And, and that's, that's, what, that's, what everybody, that's what everybody thinks. Yeah, yeah. So I did. My kid, my kid, so, you know, I, my kid, I thought he was crazy when he was in college. He said, Dad, I'm really good at Spanish. So I'm going to take Japanese. And I thought he was, I thought he was, uh, you know, like uh, maybe you know, drinking too much. But now, now that you said it, I, it, uh, Hey, why not? Yeah. Yeah. And these days, man, it's a lot more, you know, it's a global universe right now. And sure. even more so, I think in the States than Japanese, a lot of kids now are taking Chinese. Like a lot of kids are taking Mandarin in school if the school offers it. But, uh, so yeah, when Damien was in the ring, I introduced him trilingually in uh, Japanese, Spanish, and English. But uh, so, so that's what benefited me first was uh, multilingual and doing Lucha Libre and that kind of thing. And then um, as they needed um, a ring announcer because Bob Ortiz was on hiatus, I stepped up and became more of a I was a ring announcer for being a timekeeper. And then from a ring announcer, I became foreign language ring announcer for the for the foreign guys. And then I became a heel ring announcer once Bob Ortiz came back, which Paul called a step sideways. And at the time it was because it was unproven. So it was a step sideways until, you know, to see if I would take the ball and run with it. And being a heel, they moved me around a lot. They put me with, uh, they put me with the FBI. Uh, they put me with Chris Chetty under a hood, who was GQ, gorgeous quarter main. 
uh, they put me with Axel Rotten and Devon Dudley. And then I think Devon turned on Axel. So I wound up from Axel and Devon being with the Dudleys, with Devon and then Bubba turned heel. And then I'm with the Dudleys. Quintessential stud muffin. Everything was kind of like wrestling is episodic. Everything was just a work in progress. And quintessential stud muffin happened. Um, I took total elimination in April of 96 or sorry, 97. Um, and I wound up at that time um, with the bow tie and the neck brace. But along the way, before what do you mean that, then? You still wear it. Still wear it to this day. Thank God. Um, it's yeah. But, um, but long story short, I guess, is before, I guess, the bow tie and the neck brace, I had already, I think maybe starting summer, late summer of 96, there was one show we did in Reading, Pennsylvania at Body Slams Arena. Uh, like a lot of the wrestling, like a lot of places that are named like that, like a lot of the sportatoriums and whatever else, uh, it was a, a silo. You know, it would like the ECW arena was originally a warehouse. Right. And this place was just a silo. And like a lot of those places, their nature if you don't know, is that when it's cold outside, there's no air conditioning. There's no HVAC. So when it's cold outside, it's colder in the building. When it's hot outside, it's hotter in the building. So we had a summer show. I want to tell you inside it was 127 degrees, but I'd probably be lying to you by about five or 10 on the wrong end. And, uh, so I asked because I was already doing the cocky heel gimmick with the with the verbiage and everything. And I was already um, but I was wearing like a black suit, white shirt, red bow tie doing the kind of evil like the same way Fonzie was an evil referee kind of when he came in. Right. So I was kind of an evil ring announcer, but I was wearing the company colors to rub it in. I would wear the red with the white with the black with the white shirt. And because it was so hot, I remember asking, I think, Todd Gordon maybe also and Paul, it's so hot. Do you think, I forget how I phrased it, but I asked if I could not wear the shirt that day. Kind of trying to be like a play on like, I think maybe it had already happened on SNL that Chris Farley had did sure. his bit with Patrick Swayze, you know, with the Chippendales bit. So I think that had happened. I, if it didn't, then I apologize. But something inspired me and made me think, you know, I'm not the most in shape guy as it is. I'm doing kind of a Rick Rude type gimmick, but I don't have a body like Rick Rude. Maybe if I take the shirt off, maybe it won't be better and funnier, but it won't be worse either and it can't hurt. So I asked. They told me I could. So I already went without the shirt, you know, for a few months and just the black jacket with, uh, I think with the red bow tie, but without a shirt. And then from there, I guess when it was bow tie and neck brace time from total elimination, it became bow tie and neck brace time and uh, like uh, peanut butter jelly time or whatever. And uh, and that's it, man. That That's how I got the look that, like you said, like I still rock today. Did you write your own stuff? Uh, did you, Was it a, a group effort? Did you have one person that you could go to that would give you great input? 98% of the time I wrote – when it came to the Gertnerisms, the rhymes themselves, 98% of the time I wrote my own stuff. One time I accidentally – I hadn't watched the previous week's TV, something like that, and I wound up saying something in my deal – that was about pretty much the same exact thing that Danny Doring had said about himself like the previous week on TV. I think one of the fans at ringside must have seen it, you know, maybe for a moment 
you know, whatever, long story short, you know, they, they yelled it at me. So I tried to yell it back at them, wink, wink to, you know, get over whatever, but long story short, and, and that should have taught me a lesson. And I wasn't really using other people's material until I tried that. And when I tried that, I think I realized why, but, um, but yeah, 98% of the time with the Gertnerisms, I wrote my own. Um, when it came to the broader scope, like the, the grander spectrum, uh, Paul had a lot, like if we were doing uh, stand-ups at the studio for insertion into the show, uh, like me and Joey or the stuff that I did with Rick Rude, uh, that kind of stuff obviously was more Paul for the show itself. And, um, and man, you know, I, I can't say enough about Paul giving me the ball and letting me run with it. Basically, you know, he, when he was in his early to mid twenties was the color guy for Turner, uh, on Turner TV for him to have his own company that he's in charge of and owns part of. And for him, while I'm in my early to mid twenties to bestow that role on me because he needs to play himself was never lost on me and, and putting me as a, you know, as a point counterpoint with Rick Rude wasn't lost on me and him calling me the quintessential stud muffin, which is a play on universal heartthrob Austin Idol, who he managed coming up in the business. Right. All those things weren't lost on me. Yeah. So I just thought off the cuff, I, I don't know how much time you spent with this person, but he's a great friend of mine and a neighbor of mine until uh, he passed. Uh, unfortunately, I wonder if you have any Johnny Grunge stories from back in ECW or were they already gone? <laughs> no, no, he was there. He was there. Yeah, he was a lot of fun. Uh, stories? Not really. I don't think so. Um, I didn't really. I hung out with him a, a bit. I got along with him, but I didn't really travel with him like a hotel or road wise. So um, he used to be one of the Jersey indie guys that like I told you when I was coming up in 91, the kind of guys that I was meeting, uh, it was too late to meet him in that regard because he wouldn't have been at the gym because he was already a year or two, maybe even three since the late eighties working. Uh, but he lived and worked in Jersey for ICW, IWCCW sure. as Johnny Rotten uh, and uh, under a hood, I think as one of the equalizers too. Um, and he'd been working with Ted Petty, I think from Jersey is where they knew each other. Um, so I knew of him then, uh, and like I said, you know, great guy and, and hung around him and hung out with him as well in ECW. Not particularly any stories to tell. Uh, so then there's, you know, the stuff we did in the ring, I guess, when they came back, I think, and they had a little run with the Dudleys, and, uh, and I got to cut him up on the mic, um, and that was fun. But, uh, but yeah, Johnny Grunge, man, much missed. Good guy. Him and Ted Petty both are much missed, but Grunge, yes, if, you, sir. if you get to just learn moderation, I kept telling him moderation. Well, you know, uh, I, I don't want, I hate to speak ill of the dead, but I was, uh, we were talking about the last Nitro last week with Scott Hudson, and uh, he said that he drove back uh, to Atlanta with Tony Schiavone. I said, I got drunk. And, uh, but, uh, but Grunge, he would take like 30 somas at a time and then pass out for like 15, 20, 30 minutes and then wake up and take another 30. And I kept telling him, I'm like, what's wrong with the concept of taking five at a time and just being buzzed? And God bless him. Great guy. But, uh, and, and it, it, I, it's totally off the beaten path, but I've said this many times. If he was alive, so would Chris and Nancy, which is a whole different story. And there's Sunday. Uh, it's a whole different story. Yeah. Hey, we don't have a lot of time um, left uh, from your out, to, your hard out. Uh, 
Wanted to talk to you as somebody who was in a company, got a break, lived my dream, and then the thing fell apart uh, and, and ended up going out of business. When did you start to notice that uh, things weren't doing well? And uh, when did you finally realize that it was over? And how, how did you feel? Because I was crushed. I was crushed. Uh, to get that out of the way, I was crushed. Uh, 2001 wasn't a great year. Uh, I lived. Yeah, in the for city me either. Wow. Yeah, and, and well, especially here because you know. So you know, the very beginning of 2001 um, was ECW going out of business, and then um, I wound up, gosh, moving back home. I think until like I stayed with uh, my grandmother till I could figure out like. Um, you know, was I going to go back to school? Am I going to rent my own place? I kind of, I went back to um, Brooklyn. Uh, and then in September is when 9-11 happened. Oh, and a friend of mine who I had just met in the summer, like June, July, um, through the wrestling scene, the indie scene, but we were becoming good friends. And uh, the pay-per-view just two or three weeks before 9-11 was SummerSlam. And I had seen SummerSlam at his house. Uh, and, uh, and then a few weeks later he was gone. He was, I think one floor above or one floor below the point of impact in one of the two towers. Um, man, 2001 was the shits and, um, and I was crushed. When did I know it was slowing down and kind of cycling out was, um, checks started to be less frequent. Uh, I think sometimes, um, you know, we got checks every other week and I think towards the very end, it might've been that they started to every now and again, get skipped. Like, you know, we, we can only give you one week instead of the two weeks or, you know, are you in a position, you know, something like that, where it was kind of, uh, for a very short period of time towards the end, if I remember correctly, it was going towards 50% pay, um, for me at least. And I think for, for more than that. Um, so it was stuff like that. Um, Flying on a bereavement fair? You ever do that? (laughs) I didn't, no. No. And then uh, I've heard, I think I've heard a story, uh, Ron Simmons, I think. Ron Simmons, yeah. Yeah, 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 I I did hear that story. (laughs) But um, I don't know, man. And then when when did I kind of know it was over? Um, I think the last pay-per-view, the January one in the city, where we had, our next one would be March, and it would have been another guilty as charged. I don't think there was a building yet that had been announced, but we were running title cards like we were running billboards for it through the truck on TV during the January um, pay-per-view. And people were wondering, is it going to happen? I remember I was hanging out. It was actually my first time just kind of uh, spending some time in the truck and just to kind of see how the live show was put together for pay-per-view. And I was just in the truck uh, hanging out, learning, and I came down the steps of the truck and Paul was outside. I think he was about to go in the truck. And I just happened to ask him. It was during the show. But, I, you know, we would be in Westchester doing post once a week for the show. Uh, post-production, me and Joey at, um, at Ron's parents' house, cameraman. Uh, and I asked him if he knew what day, you know, in time, like when that week we'd be doing it. Because it was a little bit flexible. You know, sometimes we do it on a Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever, as long as TNN got the tape on time for it to air Friday night at 8 o'clock. So it was a Sunday, I guess, pay-per-view. And I asked him, you know, if he knew when in the next few days we'd wind up doing post. And he looked at me and he said, for now, um, you know, and, and I'll let you know, but for now, there's going to be a little bit of downtime. Oh, geez. 
which was the first time that that was ever the answer to that question. And I was back in the building and I was up in the locker room at Hammerstein and I was sitting there probably like I was on a couch and I guess I had like a tear in my eye or a faraway look. Uh, and Christian York and Joey Matthews, Joey Mercury, uh, I was managing them at the time. I think everybody was kind of, all of our guesses was that it was kind of a, um, like a Jim Cornette and the dynamic dudes deal because right. I had never managed a babyface team before. So were they going to turn on me? Was I going to turn on them? Was neither of those going to happen? Why is he with them? You know, um, cause I spent so long with the Dudleys, like three years or more, maybe ish. Uh, and you know, this happened right at the end of ECW. So even by the time me and them had been together the longest, it probably wasn't even three months yet. And uh, I was sitting there and they looked at me and they're like, dude, what's up? You look, you look upset. You look, you don't look like yourself, whatever. And I looked at them and I said, if only you guys could have come in and started here three years earlier. Was my way of saying if they would have got to ECW when it was more in its prime and they could have gotten more exposure and made more of an impact, you know, they could have probably been in WWE by then, 2001. Right. Uh, so that's probably the, the last pay-per-view was probably the day that I, that I knew it was um, – Maybe not going to be what it ever was before. I know we're running out of our allotted time. What? It, tell me a little bit uh, about your experiences working with WWE. Uh, I think you did uh, uh, one night uh, only. Was it one night only? Pay-per-view? One night stand. One night, one night stand. stand. The first yeah. one, yeah. Yeah, I did the first, the 2015 one, or the, two, the 2005 one night stand. Um, yeah, it was a blast, man. It was everything you can imagine. You know, it, it was full circle. Uh, at the beginning of the interview, you know, I talked about how the product that I watched to start was World Wrestling Federation exclusively, and I, I watched it growing up in Brooklyn on, you know, New York City's channel, not World New Jersey, whatever. But, uh, and then there I am at the Hammerstein Ballroom, Hammerstein, which I had been to a handful of times as a fan for Monday Night Raw. Uh, I think I show up once or twice, uh, you know, on episodes that are on the network or whatever, like one or two Raws I showed up on in the audience. Uh, one of them at the Hammerstein for sure. The other one might have been Poughkeepsie. I'm not sure. But long story short, like this is a WWE building that then later for our last shows was an ECW building. And now it's a WWE building again. I'm working there for them. Uh, it was very much full circle. You know, I got to meet, shake hands with Vince, who, you know, is the person who got me into wrestling because it's his product that caught my eye. So, you know, it, it, shaking hands with him, uh, you know, first time in my how, how How often do you get to say you've shaken hands with a Bill? I never met the guy. Yeah. I never, believe it or not, I never met the guy. So, you know, you say that and people might go, oh, it's Vince McMahon, you know, what's the big deal? But uh, you said shaking hands with Vince McMahon. There's a part of me that's a little jealous. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not a fanboy. Like, I'm, I'm not going to mark it like, it, you know, not not on any level that's ridiculous. But yet and still, at the end of the day, you know, what people do is what makes them who they are. And just whenever you might have met Ted Turner. I don't know if it crossed your mind like, hey, I just shook hands with, you know, one of the most influential people in the, in, in the business world. But, you know, it wasn't lost on me when I shook hands with Vince. But then there's also the wrestling aspect. The whole thing was amazing. It was unbelievable. 
Uh, they contracted me for two days, the day before the show and the show, so Saturday, Sunday, for the, the whole weekend. And I got paid for both of those days exactly as they um, – it was, it was just so non-indie and so professional and so – it doesn't even need to be said that it was that way. But, I mean, just to put it over, you know, ECW, you know, nothing wrong with it, no disrespect. But it was very much ragtag, very much, you know, we'll put it together as it comes. And, you know, people didn't have makeup. We didn't have pyro. We didn't have – the Dudleys didn't have music. That was their heat. Um, but we didn't have, you know, at the beginning, 95, 96, we didn't really have jazzy lights. We didn't have a lot of stuff that WWE and WCW had. Um, and it was just, it was a great experience to be able to work within the system and within the machine and learn that different kind of protocol. And, um, it, it was just amazing, man. They gave me a pay-per-view bonus. Wow. That was never in the paperwork, but because they were giving them out at the time, they gave me one as a gesture. You know, six months later, you know, I get a piece of mail. I'm like, well, what's that? I didn't know if it was taxes, whatever. And it's an unspoken pay-per-view bonus that they gave me. Right. It's not in the paperwork. So if they didn't give it to me, it's not like I'm missing it. Yeah. So it's you know what I mean? And and business in 2005 was OK, but not as good as it is now. So, you know, that wasn't lost on me. They gave me a bonus that was never in the paperwork to give. But because it was the city, I wound up not having to be fly, uh, flown in because I was living in the city at the time. I wound up not having to take a hotel because I was living in the city. And not just the plane and hotel aspect, but my folks were living in the city. They were living in Manhattan. So I decided that I would crash and just stay at their place after the show. A lot of the time when I've had great wrestling experience and just big nights and just, you know, you, you want to kind of have an hour or two to just kind of mellow out, blow off steam and just kind of take it all in. And with that show, the funny thing was, Dave, I got there at the building at noon. I left at midnight, did the 12 hour shift, got in a cab the cab got me to where I was staying, my folks' place in the city, in 15 minutes. Oh, my God. So I was still in the building from my first ever WWE live performance. I left the building at 12 midnight. By 12.15, I was on my parents' couch thinking about it. Wow. So it, it was pretty amazing. It was definitely a career highlight. Last thing, do you remember us the, the one time that we got to work together? Was it main event championship wrestling? It was in Philly at the arena for sure. I think I called you. I made a Zan Panzer reference. Yes, you did. It was John Collins <laughs> who ended up going to jail, and uh, and, and he, he should have gone to jail. He did go to jail. He owed, he owed me a ton. Of, he owed me a ton of money from the shows that he was flying me up to um, Ohio that he never paid me, and he owed Buff Bagwell a ton of money. At the time, I kind of uh, hitched myself to Buff Bagwell because he was a big. Not that he's not a big deal anymore, but he was a big deal for John Collins, and I was just a ring announcer. And so he said, "So he said to both of us, if we'll fly you up to Philadelphia to do the ECW Arena show, and we'll pay you. I'll pay you. I promise you, I'll pay you everything I owe you in cash. If I don't have the cash, you don't have to go out. You go home. And uh, at the time, he owed me a thousand dollars, which was a lot of money. And so, uh, you know, the thought of being able to work ECW was cool. Uh, ECW Arena was cool." And then uh, I got there, and they said, uh, you're going to go out. You're going to welcome the crowd. And then Joel Gertner's going to cut you off, cut a promo on you, throw, you ass, throw your ass out of the building. And that was it. That was the easiest 1000 bucks I ever made in the history of professional <laughs> wrestling. 
I'm nope. glad I could help. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the Angelus did the rest of the show. So did you uh, did you um, visit at Barely Legal? Because I remember that weekend was kind of a Philly wrestling weekend. Because I don't know, you know, how it wound up programmed that way, but we wound up doing the pay per view on Sunday night, and then you guys had you were in town because you had Nitro the next day. And I know some of you guys from the crew were hanging out and just maybe catching the show or visiting friends. Were you part, Were you there? At no, the arena? I, I don't believe I was. I would have remembered okay. that. But uh, but I do remember uh, our one and only uh, appearance together. And like I said, it was the the, the easiest gig and the, the for the for the most amount of money. Not not that I never made more money than that, but it was the easiest gig for that amount of money. And thousand bucks is a thousand bucks. It's it's a good payment. Yes, so hey, listen, I I, I so much appreciate your. Uh, your your time and uh, i'm sure we could talk for another 69 minutes but uh we'll have to do and that i'm sure we will brother we'll uh, to... let's talent exchange man you, you, you're welcome you like on my I, you like, anytime you like how i did this this is not my first yes, sir. you, you ham fisted yourself into the invitation that i gave you at the beginning but it still stands you know let's do the 69 minute so. eargasm you obviously are not so much into career advancement by really trying to force your way onto the show or you're a masochist, or you lack self-preservation skills, but that's fine, man. Let's make it happen. All right, hey, th- hey, thanks a lot. Good stuff, and uh, we'll pick it up uh, where we left off on uh, on your turf. And uh, uh, enjoy your evening, and uh, I'll be watching. Hey, promote real quick again. It's just Go- Joel Gertner on YouTube. Yeah, the YouTube channel, uh, the name of the channel is Joel Gertner, so you can YouTube search it as Joel Gertner or Joel Gertner channel. My Twitter is StudMuffinSays. My Instagram is quintessential stud muffin and the podcast. Once again, uh, you can get it at iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, uh, any of your podcast places. It's 69 minute eargasm. Yeah. And it's, 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 you know, you wouldn't think on the surface or maybe you would that, uh, that your wife bossing you around telling you how to cook a blue apron, uh, uh, dinner would be entertaining, but in a perverse way, like sort of like an Andy Kaufman esque way, it's extremely entertaining. So I, I definitely, uh, it, especially if it really a- is. If, if, if you've already seen all 36 of those honeymooner episodes <laughs> from the fifties and you really want a little bit more of that kind of Ralph Cramden and Alice as, and she's from Bensonhurst on a shoot legit. That's where she was born and raised, which is where they lived. Um, but yeah, if you're missing that honeymooners vibe in your life, um, dude, people who comment eight out of 10 say that she's the best thing about it. So yeah, yeah definitely check it out. I would definitely have a couple of cocktails if you can, before you watch it. But, uh, it was, it was definitely entertaining. All right. We'll see. We will talk again soon. And thank you so much. Thanks a lot, dude. All right, All right, my thanks once again to the quintessential stud muffin, Joe Gertner. Fun conversation, and uh, only met the guy one time in that ECW show. So uh, uh, didn't know what kind of interaction that we'd have, but it was very uh, smooth flowing, and I look forward to doing his podcast, uh, The 69-Minute Eargasm with Joe Gertner, and uh, picking up where we left off. So uh, if you want to see his wife bossing him around, telling him how to cook, uh, uh, have a few cocktails and check him out on YouTube as well. It is entertaining, way more entertaining than I thought it would be when I clicked on it out of pure 
curiosity and boredom at the time. So, um, hey, we're going to work on Scott Scotty Steiner. Uh, he gave me his word, and uh, we're going to work on him as well. Uh, got a big Legends of Wrestling show in Detroit coming up, by the way. So just added uh, Cowboy James Storm and Colonel Robert Parker, who's who's been a past guest here. James Storm promised me that he'll be on down the road. He's going to be in Australia next week. I already hit him up for next week. He's going to be in Australia. And, um, and we added Rikishi, who I'm go- going to book his flight as soon as we hang up this phone. So uh, uh, we added those the talent. We have Ric Flair and Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Bret Hart and a lot of great talent as well. So uh, you can find that at the Legends of Wrestling on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, it's going to be in Detroit on Saturday, April 20th. And I'm also looking forward to seeing everybody WrestleMania weekend. We talked about it with Hannibal and Hannibal TV a couple of weeks ago. Looking forward to going to the Big Apple for that. So until next week, I'm David Penzer, still City Ringside. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a Rush the Field quick fix on Radio Influence. I'm curious to see how this Fox studio show is going to work because they're trying to compete with ESPN's college game day. And it seems like it's the USC broadcast because it's uh, they got Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush and Rob Stone. So it's very it's very L.A. based. Uh, I think Brady Quinn's going to be on the set as well. So there's a little uh, Ohio flavor for Urban Meyer to get, uh, you know, Brady Quinn there. And um, it, it should be interesting. Uh, you know, look, the, we, we know we host the college football podcast. We know you can always talk college football and the desire for content is out there so I understand why they're trying to put this show together and and nailing Urban Meyer is a pretty good get yeah, it's a name value. You know, Urban's not the most gregarious guy. Uh, maybe in some cases a little dry, but if, if you really are into football, he'll he'll bring some interesting and unique content. I mean, I'm not surprised that it happened. And um, it, look, I mean, w- w- certainly the, the whole game day stuff and all that. They they've got a uh, several years you know lead on that, but this this gives them a name. And uh, while they may not be able to reach that level, that it'll be interesting to see how well. They do because you know, you're right, it's been kind of um, well, just uneventful on how some of their studio stuff is. Although, I admit that I'm certainly not an expert on because I don't watch as much of that as most people. Uh, you, you can kind of see, and I do tend to like. I tend to like coaches on there. They bring a little bit of a different perspective. Mm. Um, I don't think Dave Wanstead's all that particularly insightful, and I know he's been used on that before. Yeah. So maybe Urban will be able to do some of that. Um, so you know, it'll be interesting. Interesting football season to, to you know, a lot of games to break down, and they've got they got a good package. They've got the, the Big Ten package, which mm-hmm. kind of fits into his background of with course. Ohio State. So uh, it makes some sense for, for that reason as well. Rush the Field with Scott Seidenberg and Chris Leadry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.